0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today's episode is all about voting rights. You may have heard that the state of voting rights in this country is in serious trouble. So in this episode, we'll attempt to provide a mini history lesson on how we got here exactly. And by here, I mean how we came to have unprecedented levels of imbalance across the country in relation to how much an individual vote counts within an election. So let me ask you just a few questions. Have you ever heard of Project Red Map? You know how Karl Rove fits into this whole picture. Does the name Christian Kowski ring a bell? So everything and every person I've just mentioned has contributed in some way to your diminished representation in elections. And here to help us understand the whole picture is Kira Lerner. Kira is a journalist at Think Progress. She's written quite extensively on gerrymandering and voting rights, and she also covers elections, including special elections like the one we just had in Georgia. So let's jump right into this thing with Kira Lerner. Kira Lerner, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course. So when I look at your work for think Progress it seems like a good percentage of your writing is around voting rights. Do you consider voting rights your niche?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm a political reporter here at think Progress but I definitely have a particular focus on voting rights and elections. here at think Progress we think that voting rights are a undercovered issue. So we definitely dedicate a lot of time to telling stories that we think that other outlets are often missing.
0: Right, that's actually really well put. It is an undercover issue. And in fact, when we first spoke, but I got the sense that, you know, this was old news for you and you're you know, thinking, where have you been? Of course, this is happening and it's terrible. And I think that that kind of reflects the tenor of the topic across the country, that there are people who, like yourself and the reporters that think progress who are focused on this all the time. But the rest of the country, this is kind of undercover.
1: For sure. I mean, if you look at what the White House Is doing now with its voting commission. These issues of voting rights and access to the ballot are getting national attention, but I think progress, we've been paying attention for years. And in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election, when these issues were really of utmost importance who was going to vote and who was even going to have access to their ballot uh, we were traveling across the country meeting with voters from everywhere from the South to the Midwest to the West Coast. Talking about how things were happening on the state level and in jurisdictions that people were not paying attention to, like you said. So
0: when I talk to people about the effects of extreme gerrymandering and and I provide numbers in relation to, you know, just how much things have shifted to the right because of, you know, redistricting and other voter suppression measures. People are genuinely surprised. They're, you know, they're unaware and they're shocked, frankly, especially when I present some raw numbers, right? So I know that you spend a lot of time in the field covering, you know, special elections. Is that the same reaction that that you've gotten from constituents when you talk about this?
1: Yeah, I think people are always surprised about the magnitude of the issue. People might pay attention to a voter ID law in their state or to their local precincts being closed down. We created a map of the entire country to show how prevalent these issues were, how many different states were restricting same-day registration or early voting periods. Once you start to see a pattern, I think people are really shocked by the level of voter suppression that's occurring in this country.
0: All right, I agree. When I started looking into this issue, when I was reading Ari Berman's book, Give Us the Ballot... And, you know, this happened well before Obama's presidency This started to happen where across the country and local governments, these you know, small little laws that were pulling back voting rights were being just peppered throughout the country. Right. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things is that, that they're happening so quickly and so often that it's hard to keep up with, especially for the average person. Can't
1: forget to mention that all of this has been happening in the last few years because the U.S. Supreme Court came out with a decision in 2013, essentially gutting the Voting Rights Act. And that's why we have seen all of these different laws and efforts to suppress votes on the state level but we can get more into that later. No, of
0: course. I mean, 2013, that Supreme Court decision, Shelby County versus Holder, was a big one. But before that, in 2010, another big piece of the puzzle was Karl Rove's op-ed that he wrote in the Wall Street Journal. And it was subtitled, He Who Controls Redistricting Can Control Congress. And this was a huge deal because it kind of paved the way for Republican control of the House and the Senate for, you know, I think his his goal was control within the next 10 years. But it's had a massive effect. Can you talk about this op-ed and the effect that it's had?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, like you said, in 2010, Carl Rove uh, published that op-ed in the uh, Wall Street Journal, pretty explicitly laying out the Republicans party to gerrymander their way into congressional majorities. So this op-ed came out and he outlined what the Republican plan was going to be. A man named Chris Jankowski, who is a very Skilled Republican consultant and strategist helped the party come up with this plan that they called Red Map, which was essentially that they were going to pour in outside money, money on the national level to local races in states across the country, specifically swing states like Pennsylvania, Michigan. They were going to pour in money to races that usually only got local attention and local money. And by winning seats in state legislatures, they were then going to be able to. Have Republican politicians in office in 2010 to redraw the maps and to create a more favorable map for Republicans to take control of Congress in uh, 2012, and that's exactly what it did. And the plan was ex- was a success.
0: Yeah, it was a massive success. I mean, right? I I geeked out on it the other day, and I was looking at the word count. And it's only 800 words, you know, about roughly about 4,000 characters, which is approximately, you know, 35 tweets, which is a single day's work for the president. Right. It was pretty brief, but it had a a, a massive effect. Right. And I think that when all the work was done after this kind of redistricting project and Red Map came out, over a thousand seats that were lost. Yeah. Almost 700 700 seats seats in
1: state legislatures flipped. And yeah, that was in 2010. And so then with that huge gain in seats, the Republican Party was able to draw the districts that they thought would be favorable for them. And basically, we saw politicians choosing their voters instead of voters choosing their politicians.
0: Right. So the interesting thing, you mentioned Chris Jankowski. He came into the picture a little bit later after the op-ed was written. Do you know who the original audience for this, this article was intended to be?
1: Um, well, I think writing in the Wall Street Journal, obviously, Carl Rove knew that he would have a wide audience. And I think kind of the wheels were turning in the Republican Party behind the scenes. And this was one of the more outright public mentions of what the plan coming forward was going to be. But until this, this man you mentioned, Chris Jankowski, the strategist and consultant, took over, there wasn't really a unified person leading this effort. So he really is the person that you can credit with this red map plan and with what we saw happen in 2010.
0: Right. And I wanted to mention one of the more callous pieces of the the op-ed, which was, you know, they also saw some financial benefits for doing this redistricting. So essentially, he mentioned that the average winner of a competitive house race in 2008 spent $2 million, while a non-competitive seat was defended by far less money. So they were actually saving money at the same time they were kind of taking over these districts. What made the plan so successful is that they used pretty
1: advanced mathematical algorithms and technology to see where that they where they could save money and how that the money they did spend would pay out in seats in Congress. So part of it was kind of the genius, I guess you could call it, behind Chris Jankowski's effort. And another part was just how advanced the technology had become by 2010.
0: Right. Actually, Rachel Maddow, she interviewed Chris Jankowski. She actually referred to him as the genius behind the Red Map project. From what I read, Chris Jankowski read this op-ed and then kind of inserted himself into the project later, but I'm not sure how true that is. So the group that was behind Red Map was called the Republican State Leadership Commission. And I think that that's now been disbanded. It was disbanded, I think, in 2013, you know, after, you know, they've had these great successes. And I don't think that there has been a response from the left, an equivalent leadership commission to kind of retake or redraw the maps. Eric
1: Holder has launched a Democratic version this year, and actually he's being helped by President Obama in one of of, uh, the former president's first initiatives after leaving office. So Eric Holder, the former attorney general, is attempting to do something similar on the Democratic side. But for a number of reasons, it's just much harder for Democrats to gerrymander in the same way that Republicans can. So it's kind of unclear what a success or holder and this uh, commission would look like
0: right. So why is it harder for Democrats to do something similar or to at least undo the damage that was done after after 2012?
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot of reasons. One of them is that the damage that occurred in 2012 was so pervasive that it will take kind of a major shift in politics on state and federal level to change it. In winning over state houses in 2012, not only were Republicans able to gerrymander congressional districts so that they could take over Uh, the House of Representatives, but they were also able to gerrymander seats on the state level so that it's that much harder for Democrats to win elections to state houses. And it's also, I mean, it's not that Democrats don't engage in gerrymandering as well. If you look at a state like Maryland, they've made attempts to gain a seat or two by packing Republicans into certain districts. But states like Maryland have far fewer people than states that Republicans target with gerrymandering, like Texas and Ohio. And just because of the way that Democrats tend to cluster in urban metropolitan areas and in smaller states, it's really hard for the Democratic Party to do the same thing.
0: So I was listening to the new Democratic strategy and Chuck Schumer addressed a crowd, the new Democratic slogan, a better deal. Right? And, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, with the success of redistricting for Republicans that, you know, this wasn't mentioned once. Right as being a cause for you know losing so many seats and losing so many elections, and I don't hear a lot of Democratic leadership mentioning this. Yeah,
1: that's correct. It's not something that the Democratic Party talks about often. Like you said, the Democratic Party unveiled their 2018 campaign slogan in Berryville, Virginia, which is one of the few dozen seats that the party thinks they are able to flip in next year's midterm election. And that message focused almost entirely on uh, economic issues. There were a lot of things that were left out, gerrymandering and voting rights being two of them, but also they hardly touched on social issues. Or really anything besides how the Democratic Party can win back the working class that they think defected to help elect President Trump. So it's hard to say why the Democratic Party isn't more vocal about the issue of gerrymandering. I think it's something that would not hurt to bring up more often. But I am also not a Democratic strategist, so I don't know kind of the thinking behind getting constituents riled up about the issue.
0: Right. I mean, it it had a huge impact. When you think about the 2008 election and Obama took some, you know, Republican strongholds and, you know, after gerrymandering, these states went red. Right. I mean, so it's it's obviously had an impact. And, you know, changing your marketing strategy isn't going to undo the, the damage that redistricting has done. Exactly.
1: In the 2012 election, for example, just like you were saying, Barack Obama won the election. Obviously, he was reelected. Um, and even in states that he won, Republicans were able to win a majority of seats in the House because of the successful gerrymandering that Republicans had conducted.
0: Okay, so let's talk about Shelby County versus Holder, which is the next big piece of the puzzle. So it was a 2013 Supreme Court case. Can you explain what happened with Shelby County versus Holder?
1: Yeah. So in 2013, in this case, Shelby County versus Holder, the Supreme Court essentially ruled that the Voting Rights Act, which was this landmark piece of legislation passed in the 60s, and that was touted as one of the most important civil rights bills of our time. The Supreme Court ruled that the Voting Rights Act had been effective and was no longer needed. In her dissent, which I thought was pretty poignant, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote that getting rid of the Voting Rights Act while it is still working is like saying you don't need an umbrella because you're in the rain and you're not getting wet. So essentially, the Supreme Court gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which was a section that required certain districts around the country, mostly in the South, to pre-clear any of the changes that they wanted to make to their voting laws with the Department of Justice. And these were districts that had histories of racial discrimination and suppressing Black and other minority voters. And up until 2013, all of these districts were required to get permission, essentially, from the Justice Department when they wanted to do something like sign into law a voter ID law. And in 2013, the Supreme Court got rid of that requirement opening the floodgates for states across the country to pass laws that would restrict voters from casting ballots.
0: Right. So just even hours after this decision came down, several states started to enact laws that were that would have previously been not legal to enact without federal oversight before Shelby County versus Holder. So what were some of the laws that were enacted by some of the states?
1: So North Carolina was a good example. North Carolina is one state that just a few hours after the Supreme Court ruling, pushed ahead their restrictive photo ID law. And just to explain for those who aren't familiar, photo ID laws are laws that require all voters to show a form of ID with a photo at the polls in order to cast a ballot. And research shows that these laws are of a tendency to block minority voters, younger voters, students and elderly voters from the polls just because those are the people who are more likely not to have something like a driver's license or another form of photo ID. So it just makes it that much harder for people who want to cast a ballot to have to go to the DMV or another state agency in order to get a photo ID in order to vote. So we saw photo ID laws pop up in more than a dozen states after the Supreme Court got the Voting Rights Act. Um, We saw other restrictive laws like laws cutting back on the early voting period in certain states. We saw cuts to same day registration, which is a policy that allows people to register and cast a ballot on the same day. And we saw other simple things like cuts to voting hours on election days
0: and policies that made it more difficult for people to register to vote. You know, the interesting thing about all of these laws that came down, it seems like it's concerted or organized in some way, but it's happening across several different states. Is there a single central organization, aside from the Republican Party, that's kind of organizing these efforts or are the states just acting on their own?
1: Um, It's mostly the Republican Party and States following the playbook that they see other Republicans across the country uh, playing by. I mean, there's definitely more vocal, outspoken figures within the Republican Party who have for years pushed for laws that restrict voters claiming that voter fraud is a widespread issue when in reality we know that voter fraud is extremely, extremely rare. So people like Chris Kobach in Kansas, who you may have heard about recently um, for his position co-chairing the White House's voting commission, but he has been very vocal in pushing for restrictive voting laws for years through his position as Kansas's secretary of state. And other states have used the model that he's used in Kansas. He does this thing called cross check where he will go through his voter rolls and look for what he says are non-citizens casting ballots in elections in Kansas, and he'll purge people off of the rolls. And studies have shown that a lot of eligible voters get caught up in those purges and get removed from the rolls. So not only is that a problem in Kansas, but other states have followed and have used
0: similar cross checks. You know, Chris Kobach, he's a really interesting character in this whole story. You know, I think he's equally as, his work is equally as impactful as Chris Jenkowski, but he's a bit more vocal. And Chris Jenkowski was kind of behind the scenes, but they're both pretty, they both have been pretty impactful to deterioration of voting rights. And now
1: Chris Kobach has this national platform, Uh, He's working as a co-chair of this White House commission, and at the same time, he's running for governor of Kansas. So... In his eyes, his star is, is just rising, and he plans to kind of press for these types of voting laws in an even wider sense.
0: So we can go back to Chris Kobach a bit later, but I wanted to go back to Shelby County versus Holder because you wrote a piece shortly after that called Selma's Missing Epilogue. And the thing is, around the time that you know voting rights were being rolled back after Shelby County versus Holder, the movie Selma came out. It was you know widely celebrated. You know, it won Academy Awards and I think that the mood of the country was we were all patting ourselves on the back and it was kind of similar to the mood after the 2008 election when Obama was elected president. You know, we were patting ourselves on the back and we were kind of in the celebratory mood. You know, Republicans were kind of quietly dismantling voting rights. So what did you mean in that piece, Selma's Missing Epilogue?
1: Yeah, well, if you remember, the movie Selma came out a few years after the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in Shelby County, V. Holder. Um I think it came out around Christmas time in 2015 or Christmas time in 2014 I'm sorry. And yeah, like you said, we all went out to the movie theaters and saw this amazing depiction of the march in Selma and the passage of the Voting Rights Act and all of the heroic efforts that went into that. And all of that was very true, but what struck me the most as a political reporter covering voting rights sitting there in the theater is that how much of that we've seen become undone in the last few years and how, how sad it was that we had these civil rights heroes fight for such an important piece of legislation just to have Republicans in the last few years unravel it. So I wrote about that, not always to be the downer, um, but I wrote about how the Supreme Court did get the Voting Rights Act and how the unwritten epilogue to this movie is that dozens of states have moved to block the very voters that these civil rights icons fought on behalf of, block them from the polls. And the efforts being used today aren't as overt as poll taxes or literacy tests or the other things we saw during the Jim Crow era. But they are just as dangerous.
0: So, you covered a lot of the special elections, like the one in Georgia, for example. So, have the special elections been affected by the laws that have come down recently? Did you see any evidence of this?
1: Yeah, well, any election that has occurred in the last few years, especially since 2013, um, is obviously impacted by the Supreme Court's ruling in Shelby v. Holder. I covered two, or I covered most of the special elections that occurred since Trump took office in January. So the special election that took place was obviously not a regular scheduled election. It was called because Tom Price was nominated by President Trump to serve in his cabinet as the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So there is a kind of obscure law in Georgia that cuts off a voter registration period 30 days before an election occurs, meaning that you cannot register to vote in the 30 days leading up to an election. So if you have not registered in advance, you're out of luck. So a group of, of voting rights advocates in Georgia filed a lawsuit claiming that this law was unfair because the special election was called for and scheduled. So last minute, they thought that the voter registration period should be reopened to allow for as many voters as possible to participate in the special election. And you have to remember that special elections always have really low voter turnout anyway. It's really hard to get Americans to turn out for any election, let alone an election for one member of Congress on the ballot and one that was not already scheduled far in advance. Um, So the voting advocates actually ended up winning that case. A federal judge ruled in May that the voter registration period had to be opened. And what I thought was kind of a shocking response: Karen Handel sent out a fundraising email to her supporters saying that the court's decision was partisan and that it should boil your blood. That's a direct quote, boil your blood, that the court is allowing more people to register to vote. So that just shows what a partisan issue voting has become in this day and age. And the fact that the Republican was this angry that more people will be participating in the election. You
0: know, I didn't I didn't get that email. I wasn't surprisingly signed up to her newsletter. But what was the what was the explanation behind how it should boil your blood? I don't understand that.
1: Well, Republicans like to claim that expanding voting is a partisan issue because The truth of the matter is that they know that when more people participate in elections, it tends to help Democrats. Yeah, Karen Handel claimed that this was a partisan decision coming down last minute to help Democrats have a last minute advantage. I think part of it was because the civil rights organization that filed the lawsuit, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, is a group that not only supports voting rights, but has had taken issue with Karen Handel's position on other issues.
0: Right. The interesting thing is, is that when I when I look at pieces about what's happened with voting rights, a lot of them take the angle that, you know, Republicans have secretly reduced voting rights or have secretly dismantled voting rights. And, you know, there's nothing really secret about it. I mean, I think it's understood by anyone who's paying attention that their goal is to restrict minority voting rights and to keep young people and people of color away from the polls like that. That is not a secret. That's true. And more and more we
1: have Republican lawmakers who pretty explicitly say in interviews and publicly that the goal of something like a voter ID law is to help Republicans win elections. So while this may have started out as kind of a veiled strategy to keep their power, it has turned into something that they're more and more comfortable talking about, and it's not so secret anymore.
0: No, it's not a secret, and it's interesting when I was watching the interview with Chris Jankowski, you know, he too mentioned that very openly that this was a strategy to help Republicans get elected. But the thing that they never mention is that by doing this, what they need to do is disenfranchise a group of voters by race, because that would be illegal, of course. True.
1: Well, you have to keep in mind that what Chris Jankowski is talking about, racial gerrymandering, is different from some of these suppressive voting laws that are going on um, in states throughout the country. And we have seen courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, strike down maps that are gerrymandered racially, saying that you cannot pack voters of certain races into certain districts in order to help one party or the other. But when it comes to partisan gerrymandering, which would just pack voters of a certain party in one district or another, courts are way more reluctant to get involved.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about this Voter Fraud Commission and Chris Kobach. He has an interesting history. I understand he's been sued several times by the ACLU. Who is Chris Kobach?
1: Chris Kobach is Kansas's Secretary of State. He is a staunch conservative. He came into office railing against the threat of undocumented immigrants. He would call them illegal immigrants. And aliens who he says are casting ballots in U.S. elections and committing voter fraud. He helped write the really controversial immigration law in Arizona that we saw struck down. And now he is not only serving as Kansas's secretary of state, but like I mentioned, he's running for governor of Kansas and serving as the co-chair with Vice President Mike Pence of the White House's Commission on Voting. So Chris Kobach has been given a platform where he is Able to spread his staunchly conservative message about voting to Secretaries of State and other voting officials across the country.
0: Right. You know, I, I, I'm I'm hesitant here because I'm trying to be kind, but when you look at a lot of his work in his early career and office, I mean we call it staunchly conservative, but it's essentially just racist because right now he's focusing on voting rights. But early on in his career, he made statements like, and I'll just read a quote here, if you really want to create a job tomorrow, you can remove an illegal alien today. I don't think anyone would argue that, you know, that that position is, you know, clear. It's not even a dog whistle. It's very clear what his aim is.
1: Yeah, he has been very anti-immigration throughout his career. And while you said that those are separate issues, now he's focused more on voting. He really kind of intertwines them together. And his whole reason for fighting for efforts to restrict voters is that he believes that undocumented immigrants are participating in our elections. As Donald Trump said after the election, in what we now know was a blatant lie, Trump believes that three to five million undocumented immigrants may have cast a vote in the last election, costing him to lose the popular vote. Um, And that's an argument that came straight from Chris Kobach. Chris Kobach may have never said three to five million, but he's been claiming that thousands of undocumented immigrants are participating in, in elections in Kansas. And that lie has had dangerous consequences. And one of those consequences is that this commission has been launched and will likely advise the president to
0: take national action that'll make it harder for people to vote. So here's the thing that I struggle with. You know, there is some some intellectual dissonance here. So you can't lie about three to five million immigrants, you know, voting but then have no evidence that that's ever happened. I actually don't believe that either Trump or Chris Kobach actually believe that there's an issue. I
1: mean, it's hard to say for sure because that involves understanding Trump's psychology and I don't think I can even begin to do that. But we see time and time again that Trump is willing to lie and then back up his lie with more lies when there is absolutely no evidence to support his claim. And I think that lie about illegal voters is one of the most prominent and one of the most blatant forms of lying that Trump has done since he took office. And I think it is one that could have, like I said, the most dangerous consequences,
0: right? So they've been peddling this voter fraud fantasy for for a while, with with no evidence to back this up. And you know, I think generally other Republicans, especially mainstream Republicans, have been quiet on this issue. But you know, the the thing that I think is unfortunate about this is that I don't think Republicans believe that there is evidence of voter fraud either. So. Why aren't they speaking up?
1: Well, when it does come to different uh, Republican lawmakers controlling states across the country, they are able to come up with a few examples of voter fraud. And then from those few examples, they extrapolate that, oh, well, if we see three people committing voter fraud, there's likely to be many more. But if you actually look at it, the three people who may have committed voter fraud in a state like Kansas, um, I reported on this a few years ago are all elderly voters who did not mean to commit a crime and were confused they had a summer home in Colorado and also lived in Kansas and thought that they could vote for local office on both ballots and honestly just made an honest mistake and didn't know what the problem was. So we don't see obviously the type of voter fraud on a massive scale that Republicans talk about. But they're also kind of perpetuating this lie with farcical statistics that they have come up with and one of my colleagues here at Think Progress, Joshua Eaton, obtained a document a few months ago that had not before been released, showing that one of the studies that Chris Kobach uses to claim that 18,000 illegal, non-undocumented immigrants are voting in Kansas is based on a sample size of as few as 14 people. And if you ask anyone who works in the social sciences, you cannot extrapolate conclusions based on a sample of 14 people.
0: Right. Well, they should use Christian Kowski's team, who is obviously really good at, you know, understanding data science. There you go.
1: We should have the Chris's team up.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, so since it's obviously a fantasy and it's not true, who is the intended audience for this message and to what end? right? You don't need to, to convince Republicans that that it's a good idea to roll back voting rights. So why, is, why the need to repeat this lie?
1: I mean, I think you do need to convince Republicans because voting has not always been a partisan issue. If you look back just a few decades ago when George W. Bush was president, he and the Republicans in Congress voted to renew the Voting Rights Act. At the time, it wasn't even a controversial vote. It was just something that Proceeded every decade or so as scheduled. It's only recently as things have grown far more partisan in Washington and across the country that we see issues of voting being used politically. So I think Republicans, Republican voters across the country do have to be convinced by their lawmakers that restrictive voting measures are in their best interest. And I think that's what this commission is doing. And that's what Republicans have been working at since 2013.
0: But this commission hasn't had a lot of success, has it? A lot of states have refused to participate. And, you know, I'm not really sure if it has a long shelf life. What's your take on the state of the Voter Fraud Commission?
1: Exactly. Well, from the beginning, this commission has had failure after failure. One of the first failures being that its first public initiative was that Chris Kobach sent a letter to secretaries of state in every state across the country asking for a massive amount of personal voter data. Some of the information that Kobach had asked for was the last four digits of voter social security numbers, which he should have known would not be publicly available. So it was a very public and massive failure for the commission. And it's not a great sign that that's how it kind of kicked off its activities. And then this commission was only formed in May, and it's already facing seven federal lawsuits On a range of allegations, including that it is violating people's privacy, it's not following the Administrative Procedure Act, and that it is intending to discriminate against minority voters. So it's entangled in litigation in courts across the country. The commission met, and all of the commissioners went around and introduced themselves. And Mike Pence's overarching message to the public at this meeting was that we are going into this commission and into this investigation with no preconceived notions. We're going in with an open mind and we're going to see whatever comes about, comes about. And as soon as he said that, Kobach took the mic and started railing against undocumented immigrants casting (laughs) ballots. And other Republican secretaries of state and notorious voter suppressors said the same thing, talked about voter fraud. So we know where this commission is going. They're planning on doing their investigation over the course of a year or 18 months, and then issuing a recommendation to the president and disbanding. And it's not hard to see where, where that's going.
0: Right, you know that's interesting. This um, Chris Kobach character, you know, he seems to not be able to hide his true intentions. It's it's kind of an an, an emotional thing for him, it seems, and, and less political.
1: Yeah, it's it's some of both. And one of those seven lawsuits that are currently pending against the commission that I mentioned, one of them claims that Chris Kobach is violating federal law by using his position on the commission to help enrich his campaign for governor. They claim that it's a conflict of interest that he is on this commission and serving in order to grow his public persona and help him win election in Kansas. So he's kind of facing attacks on all different levels, and it'll be interesting and somewhat scary to see how much he's able to accomplish while there's so much resistance.
0: So should we or should we not be worried about this commission? I'm worried.
1: I encourage you to worry as well, because it is a definitely a scary time if you care about our democracy and if you care about access to the ballot. There's a number of things that people can do to fight back and to show this voting commission that they're not going to stand for voter suppression. And that includes reaching out to the secretary of state and the governor in your state and just sharing your opinion like you do on any other issue. And it also includes helping to elect people on a local level who don't support things like voter ID laws. So while people should be scared, as we've seen over the course of the last six months, It's more effective to channel that anxiety into a productive resistance.
0: So should we should should constituents be asking their local governments to be more vocal about what's happening with the Voter Fraud Commission and to push harder and to push against laws that are restricting voting rights? I mean, I think a lot of people are focused more on the ACA and they're focused on, you know, pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And, you know, all of those things are really important. But if we don't have equal access to the ballot, then none of those issues matter. Definitely. There's obviously a lot of attention being paid
1: to the healthcare debate right now for good reason. But it's just as important for voters to speak out when they see a tax on the fundamental right to a democracy. And it's not a difficult thing to do, just like you can call your lawmaker and take a few minutes and convince them to vote a certain way on a healthcare bill. You can do the same thing when it comes to calling your lawmaker and asking them to vote to restore the Voting Rights Act. So I think it's incredibly important to keep the pressure up. I know some of the resistance groups, like Indivisible, actually have call scripts on their website if you're interested in calling your Secretary of State or Governor and encouraging them to resist the Kobach Pence Voting Commission. Um, And there's all kinds of information on their website about what you can do. But staying informed about what the commission is doing and Uh, expressing your opposition in any way possible is the only way that this commission is not going to be effective.
0: I think a couple of other things that people can do overall. Um, First of all, everyone should read Give Us the Ballot, Ari Berman's book that came out, you know, I think it just came out a few months ago. And I think it's, John Lewis called it a must read. And it truly is a must read. Also, there have been some successes around voter registration. Like there was a law passed in Oregon. I think it was passed, what, in 2015? Automated voter registration.
1: Yeah, we know ask the automatic voter registration in, I believe, more than 10 states. I think we're up to close to a dozen. Oregon was the first state to pass this law, but we're seeing more and more states jump on board. And there was a recent study published by the Center for American Progress, where Think Progress is housed, showing how effective those laws are, especially in helping younger voters, students, and millennials participate in elections. So, supporting things like automatic voter registration, same day registration, other efforts to make it easier for people to get absentee ballots or vote by mail. All of those things are also incredibly important.
0: It sounds like voters should be pushing their local politicians to enact similar laws. I mean, in Oregon, for instance, I think just the passage of automated voter registration increased the number of registered voters by over a quarter of a million people. And that was just in time for the 2016 election. And Oregon's a fairly small state. Exactly. The sheer number of people who were registered and who participated in
1: elections increased As did, if you break that number down and look at the types of people who are participating in elections, you're seeing more demographics who generally have barriers to the ballot participating. So younger people, like I said, minorities and elderly voters.
0: So, Kira, do you have any parting advice for us about, you know, how we could possibly win back the House in 2018? What should constituents be doing right now?
1: Constituents need to continue doing what they've done so well already this year, keeping the volume and the pressure up on Congress and on their local lawmakers. I think when it comes to issues like gerrymandering and voting rights, it's just as important to call your local representatives as it is to call your members of Congress. So this is an issue you care about if you care about having an equal access to the ballot and everyone in your community having equal access. You can do things like call your lawmakers and encourage them to not pass voter ID laws or to repeal a voter ID law or to do things like pass an automatic registration law, like we mentioned. So just as constituents have gotten so good at picking up the phone and calling their lawmakers and showing up to local offices this year, they can do the same when it comes to voting. And on the gerrymandering side of things, it's important also to encourage lawmakers to push for independent commissions to help redraw lines. The only way not to have politicians drawing districts in 2020 after the next census is to have independent commissions in place to do that job instead.
0: Kira Lerner, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.